Hello and welcome to Music Forward Foundation's Industry Sessions, Conversation in Music. Music Forward is a part of the House of Blues and Live Nation family that inspires ambition and creates momentum to redefine what is possible for young people in the music industry. Check out musicforwardfoundation.org for more information and let's get into the show. Hello everyone, my name is Mike Warner. I am the Director of Artist Label and DSP Relations at Chartmetric. My pronouns are he, him, and I will be the moderator for today's conversation on tech tools for creative careers, where we will discuss the details, trends, and career pathways on this topic. We're joined by some of the industry's top leaders in this space. So let's begin with panelist introductions. Let's start with Stacey, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in the industry. Hi, everyone. It's nice to speak with you all today. Um, I'm the CEO at Ben Zugel, um, and I've been here for the last four years. Um, uh, sorry, 15 years, and I've headed Ben Zugel for about four years. Uh, what we do is we help artists build professional websites, promote their music, and sell direct to fan for a flat monthly fee. Um, we have a built-in store, mailing list, reporting, and integrations with social networks. Um, and uh, our members, basically, we help our members build and create a sustainable income through their website. Um, I've, Like I said, I've been here for about 15 years. Uh, I came in as the first tech support person, and I worked my way up from there to CEO. Um, and since then, I've helped build our member base tenfold um, by addressing the changing needs of artists um, to build out a fuller suite of uh, all-in-one tools. Awesome. And as Chaz takes a sip of his coffee there, we might jump to Chris and we'll do you next, Chaz. Uh, sure. I'm Chris Robley. Um, I'm on the marketing team at CD Baby. Um, CD Baby is the original indie music distributor. Um, I've been there for 15 years. I've done a lot of things, had probably a similar trajectory of um, uh, juggling lots of different responsibilities. When I started there, it was primarily a CD distributor, um, as the name suggested. Um, and then we got into um, digital distribution to iTunes, the download revolution that shifted to streaming. Um, along with that, we've also gotten into lots of other forms of music monetization, like uh, social video monetization, YouTube content ID, uh, publishing rights administration, and a bunch of other stuff. So it's been an interesting 15 years. Um, on top of all that, I try to occasionally use tech to get people to listen to my own music. <laughs> <laughs> and you're all over socials this week as well of the album. Congratulations on that. Oh, Chris. thank you. Successful launch. And Chaz. Yeah. Hi there, everyone. My name's Chaz Jenkins. I'm Chief Commercial Officer of uh, Chartmetric. We're a market analytics platform, which is a fairly meaningless phrase to most people. But what we do is we look at the entire global marketplace for music, bring in information from every single service, um, from social networks, and knit it all together. Um, so we monitor around about 5.8 million artists globally at the moment. We monitor what's happening on every single streaming service and social network surrounding musicians so that you can understand, so that anyone who uses Chartmetric, whether you were an artist, you work in a record label or a publisher, so that you can understand not necessarily what people are listening to or um, who is releasing what, but how people are discovering music, how people share music with their friends and how the audience for artists develops over time on a global level. 
Awesome. And we are also co-workers and friends as well. So it's cool to see you on here, Chaz. Um, let's dive straight into some questions. And I will direct these to you individually. But for this first question, I'm just going to open it up and I'll let whoever wants to chime in first. Please just feel free. But how has technology impacted the expectations of fans today? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go in. As undoubtedly the oldest person on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I, this, this, this event is geared towards people between the ages of 16 to 24. Now, when I was 16 to 24, there was no internet. There were no social networks. There were no streaming services. You know, I discovered loads of music all the time, but I discovered from my friends. And I had a really small circle of friends. I had four friends, which actually sound, I think was quite a lot back then in the 1980s. You know, four friends wasn't that bad. Today, people have thousands of friends. We're connected with people all over the world. And this, um, we normally think of this in terms of social networks, but streaming services as well. The majority of streaming services are built on the same data architecture as a social network. They say, use the same algorithms to surface content, to surface music, to add it to playlists, to push music to users. And so all of this sort of all of this social architecture, which connects us with people, has profoundly shaped the way we listen to music today. You know, not only are very many more people listening to music and buying music than ever did in the past, they're doing so on a global level. Countries where people never really had access to new music before are now connected to the internet and people are able to listen to your music, which you release. So... Technology has just profoundly reshaped music. It's presented so many more opportunities to artists and to creative people. The challenges of breaking through, they're still there. They're still challenging. I would piggyback onto that and just say I completely agree. And just the access and the availability is has been the biggest change. Um, and this, pre this presents a ton of opportunities for artists to not only engage fans, but build relationships with them directly. Um, yeah. I think uh, one thing I've noticed is like in the 90s, I would be waiting years for my favorite band to put out their next record. It would be a huge event. I would go to Tower Records at midnight to buy it. And I think the internet, social media, tech has sort of killed the idea of anticipation for most artists, or at least the kind of the indie DIY artists that um, I sort of have my eye on the most. I mean, I'm sure everyone's still looking forward to Beyonce's new album or Radiohead or something like that. But, um, and so, so I think fans are way more um, responsive as opposed to anticipatory. And I see the plus and minuses of that. I think um, immediacy of the tech combined with just the volume of music being made puts um, uh, maybe a new kind of pressure on artists to be catching more and more attention more often, um, which I think stresses us out and makes us, um, yeah, we just have to be more productive, more creative, more on the game consistently. Um, the flip side of that is I do feel like there's a positive aspect to the access fans have to their favorite artists where the artists don't have to be as mythic they can be real people, which I think honestly is good for like some mental health stuff. Like I saw 
uh, Billie Eilish this morning or yesterday sharing that she had like chewed one of her nails off by accident or something like that. I'm like, oh, she's okay just being a real person. So uh, I don't know. I like that about social media and, and the accessibility. That's some really good points. And obviously pre-saves don't have the same level of same level of excitement as lining up outside a store to be one of the first to physically hold something in your hand, of course. So I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I feel like some of us might've been showing our age by talking about that, but <laughs> we've been around and we, we've seen it change and evolve. Um, on to the next question. Let's, let's shift it slightly more focusing on the artist side. How can artists maximize revenue streams available to them using current technology? Well, I think uh, when I think about maximizing your revenue streams as an artist, um, I think there's a couple of big strategies and those are diversifying your revenue streams. Um, one of them is at the, at the fan level, you want to make sure that you have like a wide spectrum of offerings for everything from the passive listener that I call the Spotify fan to the super fan. And that might look like making your music available across all streaming platforms for that first group. And then it might look like creating gated content behind tiered subscriptions or with really unique offerings for super fans. So if you don't provide like a big range of products or services and content for all of those different types of fans, um, then you could be leaving money on the table. Fans want to support you, but if they can't, they can't if you're not offering something that they might be interested in. And the next point I was going to say is diversification. Um, so whether that's leveraging direct event sales tools, uh, virtual or in-person music lessons, session work, sync licensing, subscription models, songwriting workshops, um, I think it's important to explore all of the different um, ways to utilize your breadth of skills as an artist and the talents that uh, will help you secure different ways of generating income. I think with, uh, like with CD Baby, we make it easy for uh, a kind of um, the diversification you're talking about to be easy and, and passive. So like it's one sign up process and we'll get you onto all the streaming platforms you're in for sync licensing, you're in for social monetization, publishing rights. So it's like you're casting a wide net, but that also doesn't mean you're going to be succeeding in all those realms. You kind of still have to prioritize where you're putting your efforts. Um, it can't be all things, all people. So I do, I agree that like leaning into your uh, super fan or leaning into the process that you need to take in order to find super fans would be where I'd say artists should, should um, put their efforts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'd say, I'd, I'd say you need to reach an audience and you need to reach quite substantial audiences these days. And, you know, there are lots and lots of tools out there to enable you to engage audiences. Um, you know, it's, but there's a process of learning which are very best for your music, your audience, your marketplace, and then maximizing your use of those individual channels to engage with audiences. And also, you know, you know, there's an there's an expectation, or there used to be an expectation until maybe a couple of years ago that as a new artist or if you're a label releasing your first recordings, um, that your music would appeal to people in the local area where you actually live or are based. And that has fundamentally trans shifted over recent years. You know, these days anybody can listen to the same music anywhere in the world. 
And we all are doing that. And so quite often, even early stage artists, when you're first releasing music, it is not unsurprising to find your music being listened to on the other side of the world. And you might have zero audience in your home, in the town where you live. And so, you know, it, in a sense, it almost doesn't matter where your audience is, provided you're growing the audience. If you grow your audience, you stand more chance of building audiences in other places as well. If you're not growing your audience, then you've then it's a battle to turn it around and get growth going again. Great points. Any, anything else to add from anyone before we dive into the next question? Okay. How do you stay on top of the trends and innovations that have the potential to impact your work? So how do you find out about the latest tools? How do you find out about the latest trends and innovations that have the potential to impact your work? I think being like really deeply immersed into the music world as an artist definitely helps when you're working in music tech. At Benzugal, we're we're essentially building the tools that we need for our own music businesses. So we're considering like we have Luis in South America, who's this incredible drummer. We have opera singers on staff. Like how would they need to use these tools that we're building? Um, so just being involved in um, in like the real <laughs> the real time use of the tools that we would need to be using is really helpful. But on the other hand, like Bendigal is also a design firm. So we spend like half of our resources on R&D. Um, so just making sure that uh, if if you're not that involved in maybe, uh, I don't know, the current current design trends or like current tech trends, just surrounding yourself in a network of people who have a vested, honest interest in all of those things is really important. Um, and this is almost like an advisory council, right? Like just, I think networking is a really important part of staying on top of things. I don't know if I uh, am answering the question here, but I'll just pretend pretend to be or actually just be the Luddite of the group and say, I actually think there's a risk in over emphasizing specific tech, specific platforms. And I just want to like bring for artists say, uh, sake, just bring it back to the importance of a, a good brand, a good story, good music, because if you have that, you can find people on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, on clubhouse where there are many, there's no shortage of people on any of these platforms um, and so if you're focusing on yourself, the creativity behind it, um, you, you can find an audience and there's a danger in sort of always having shiny object syndrome or whatever you'd call it, where it's like, you feel guilty for not having massive traction on clubhouse. So everyone's jumping there and then you feel guilty because you're not huge on whatever else. And so you're constantly hopping instead of digging into where you're already at, where you're already comfortable, where you already understand the culture. Um, and developing good habits there. Because if you have shitty habits on Instagram, they're not going to get any better by jumping to a different platform. So that would be my cautionary tale. Just sort of um, focus on what you enjoy doing in the place you enjoy being. And then, um, yes, there will be stories of early adopters who have massive success in some new place. But a lot of times, it's kind of a gold rush that follows. Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of echo what both um, Stacey and Chris said, which is, you know, essentially don't get distracted by the latest trends unless those latest tech trends are right for your audience. You know, there are certain basic channels 
where where everybody needs to be because they it's where the vast majority of people spend at least some of their time you know so if you're not on instagram if you're not on youtube if you're not don't have your music on spotify then you're going to find it things very very hard to build an audience because audiences are social if they tell their friends and their friends look in their favorite place and they don't see you there there's no connection so there are certain basic things, but beyond that, learn your, learn about your audience. You know, if if you discover that your audience is say really <clears throat> is really into gaming and strongly male, and so let's say late teenage, early twenties audience, you know, consider embracing Twitch. You know, if however your audience you know skews. Um, in a different demographic, there are going to be other tools which are far far more appropriate for you. Um, but get the basics right, most definitely. You know, the basic platforms, a good website, and assistance around you. Because you know, if you're trying to – being an artist is incredibly busy. It's incredibly hard work. You need to manage and juggle so many individual things. So don't make it life too difficult for yourself unless you're certain that a platform or a tool is going to really benefit you. Yeah, I feel like we're all on the same page there. Um, it can get overwhelming. There are so many platforms, so many tools, and you're not meant to be an expert and be active on all of them. Uh, really important for everyone to remember that, that if TikTok is where you want to hang out, where you like to be, spend most of your time on TikTok. It's fine. Um, and Chris, you know, it's funny you mentioned Clubhouse. I remember one day telling you to sign up for it, and we went on there and we experimented briefly. And I don't have the app on my device right now and I jump on from time to time when there's a reason, but at the very least, when these new apps, these new tools come out, just create a, create a login, check it out. You may come back later. There's no expectation to be over overly active on there and especially with so many tools and so many platforms now. Sorry, I just had to add my two cents in there. No, it's well. true. So we get, Took we off get the moderator the hat for a second. We get that fear of missing out and then it's like suddenly you're spread so thin you can't do anything well because you want to be everywhere. Exactly, exactly. We're only human. We only have so many hours in the day. So on to the next question. This is more about career choices and I'll throw it out to the group once again. How did your earliest career choices lead you to where you are now? I can start with that. <laughs> um, growing up, like if, if we're talking really early, growing up, I spent all of my time playing guitar, going to live music events from Thursday to Sunday. That's what I that's what I did in my spare time. And when I joined Benzigal about 15 years ago, I was actually leaving a really successful real estate career, which doesn't seem like it has any transferable uh, skill <laughs> skills or knowledge. But um, it was a little bit crazy because Benzigal was this tiny tech startup, but it felt really exciting. And um, tech startups were not really something that like you wanted to put all of your eggs into a basket at that time. So I, I just like in my heart, I knew it was a great idea and that it had the capacity to help a lot of artists. It was like, it was a very big risk, but it really changed my future. So I, I would say like I talked about transferable skills and they say that in real estate that buyers are liars. <laughs> and I would say that it, it doesn't really refer to the fact that consumers or like, you know, the end user is being dishonest. But 
as a realtor or as a company lead, you really have to figure out what people need from what they're saying. And it's kind of like detective work. So this translates really well to music tech because uh, what the user wants um, or really wants to accomplish is not what they're saying most of the time. So like with house purchases, with, with building a new home on the web, it's not something that most people have a ton of experience with or do all that often. So I would say that taking that risk early on and just um, using my transferable skills was, uh, was a, a really early, uh, an early career choice that led me to where I am now. Yeah, I, I, I'd echo what Stacey said about transferable skills. I mean, my first job in the industry was um, being a, I was a well, as a club promoter and then nightclub manager and concert promoter. And you know, and then then after about uh, eight years, I shifted into founding record labels and running record labels, which was quite different from being a concert promoter. I mean, there's certain similarities, and of course, it's music. But, you know, the skills are different. But the one thing which I really picked up when I was promoting clubs was, um, you know, this is back in the early 90s, and people didn't have mobile phones, but people were starting to use computers. Email was just becoming a thing. When we were running clubs, the only people that had email were um, people with really professional jobs, you know, lawyers and uh and people who worked in pharma and, you know, big companies like that, they had access to email. And that was great. We wanted them in the club because they had lots of money and they spent lots of money at the bar. Whereas younger kids who were still at school or at college, we didn't really want them in the club. I mean, okay, they could come into the club, but they'd never spend that much money at the bar. And so we, we would gather email addresses. We would build databases. And, you know, that skill with sort of managing data has really stuck through me with that throughout my career when I shifted moving into shifted into record labels and then obviously now with chart metric you know data has been the you know a central pillar in every single thing I've done in my career uh, I think for me, it sort of accidentally ended up in a career I love because I was being protective of my time to make my own music and so I graduated from college with an English degree, which I had no idea what I was going to use I, that for. I really just wanted to be in a band and, and make music. So I got a job as like a bank teller and, because it was a job I could leave at any point. It didn't feel invested in. And I did that sort of thing for long enough until I actually needed to sell my CD. And I was like, oh, that's a cool company, this CD baby place. So I got a job there. And even then... It was to protect my time because I knew they didn't care if their employees left without pay for three or four weeks at a time to go tour. Um, so even then it was a decision because I just selfishly wanted to make music. And then as I got older, I was, you know, like, oh, this is a really cool job. I have other responsibilities. I, you know, music is not going to pay the bills full time for me. So um, it accidentally wound into uh, a, a really cool place. And I would say, in my growth at the company, one thing that I think has served me is just curiosity. Like I was always happy to admit things I didn't know and ask people or read and research and, and just, just try to learn more. So that's one thing I would uh, encourage everyone to just keep as a quality. Awesome. So we've got starting in real estate, club promotion, and a bank teller. Chaz, are you a bouncer too? <laughs> uh, no, but we did um, send our security team on a weekend training course, uh, and I went along with them. It was terrifying. 
<laughs> you suddenly realise that, you know, this perception of being a bouncer is all about sort of hitting people and being really threatening. And you go on this training course and know it's all about safety. It's all about, and um, and it really scared the whips out of me. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are where you are now, Chaz. And uh... <laughs> on to the next question here. I'm keeping an eye on the time as well. And I've seen some comments in the chat. If anyone has a specific question, post it within this session in the Q&A, and we will be getting to your questions soon as well. On to the next one. From your perspective, how has the role of technology in music and creation evolved over the past few years? So this could be on the creation side with yourself, Chris, or this could be on the tech side with Stacey or Chaz. I would say, oh. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> um, I would say that it's uh, it's really about availability and access and the rise of SaaS business, businesses, like over time, more and more techies are building these self-serve tools to help people solve problems. And before what might've required like people power to accomplish a task, like now somebody like a, an individual can do. So as a result, like artists with, with limited resources of time and money might be able to do a lot more by themselves, um, things that might've required a full team before. I was just going to say, I'm super envious of teenagers who are interested in making music right now because, you know, I just see these ads on Instagram all day for, you know, sample drum packets and like splice as this amazing resource of, of uh, manipulatable sound. And I was like, oh, it seems like music production. I won't say it's easier, but it, there's certain parts of music production that are so much easier now. And I think that's amazing. Um, I like that. Um, it being so accessible kind of brings music back or, or it could bring music back to this thing that was a little bit more homegrown in the family. Everyone was doing, you know, gathering around the piano or, or playing music on the porch, that sort of antiquated sense of communal, um, person to person investment in music. I kind of like that there's a, maybe a digital equivalent with every, everyone having cheap access to amazing tools. Yeah, I, mean, I think a lot of we think, often think of tools as being things which are completely and utterly innovative, something completely new, you know, tech tools. But actual fact, I mean, a lot of tech tools evolve to reflect the marketplace and the change in the marketplace and the way consumers live their lives. And, you know, with charm metric and data, I'll give you an example. I mean, it, essentially, people use charm metric to improve their knowledge about the marketplace. So that if they're artists or marketing people, they can understand how to better connect with audiences. And um, or if they're AR people, they want to be able to discover new artists. So and these are things which didn't start with technology. You know, this acquisition of knowledge has been, goes back 30 years, 50 years, back to in the music industry long before. Um, you know, digital technology took over and we all had computers and, and mobile phones. You know, but back in the old days, knowledge was equally important, but there just wasn't much information there. So if you, you and it was quite easy to absorb all that data and just store it in your head. 
You know, if you knew what was in the charts, if you knew who was on tour, if you knew the capacities of the venues, then you could be a pretty good A&R person, just talk to lots of people and then use this knowledge to make a good decision. Today, you know, there's so many more consumers, there's so much more data created. The average person's gone from buying two products a year, you know, in other words, only creating two data points a year to creating 20,000 data points per year. And so, you know, we've evolved with the marketplace to create chart metric so that people don't have to try and store this in infinite amount of data in their head. Awesome. Anyone else, anything else to add there? Okay, on to the next one. So now we're looking into suggestions. Uh, what areas of study or training would you recommend to someone interested in your field of work? I would say mentorships can go a really long way. Um, like find someone who's at the top with similar values that you have and similar goals and learn from that. And Depending on what point you are at your life, that could look like an intern position at a music tech company. It could be an assistant position. You could just be like a, like a, a roadie. Like it, de it depends on what your goals are. And I think just that kind of practical experience is really invaluable. I'd say get expert, get, don't focus too much on the type of role which you're seeking. You know, focus on getting a role, you know, ideally something which is right for you, but then talk to people, you know, talk to people, get to know people. You know, I hate using the word network because it makes people feel intimidated and as though they have to do something really formal. Just talk to people and get to know people and ask people questions. You know, in a sense, that'll improve your knowledge, but it'll also, you know, mark you out as somebody who's inquisitive and somebody who's constantly looking for new things and to learn things. And that's the most important thing. Uh, and I'd, I would add to that uh, on the networking front, patience and persistence, because I, I um, once I met someone who worked at CD Baby, I asked for a job for like three years straight before they were like, actually, you know, something opened up. Let's hire this guy. So stick with it. Uh, you know, don't take no, um, well, take it politely, but don't take it as the definitive answer. I was going to say, if somebody says no, do you still turn up? No, we won't give you a job. Do you still turn up to the office and say, I'm here? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that happened in an, at least one episode of Seinfeld with George. So <laughs> that's all I'm picturing in my head right now. All right. On to the next one. And then after this, uh, just for everyone in the chat, after this, we're going to dive into the Q&A. So I see a few questions populating. We'll be getting to those shortly for you. So last question before we dive into that. What innovations in technology do you find most exciting? Uh, I would say there's a lot of advancements in artificial intelligence um, that I think will help artists in the coming years. And that could be something as simple as like, what's the best segment of my track to use for this TikTok clip? Or which is like, which song in my catalog is most likely to be a hit? And um, I know that like many big tech companies have been using these technologies and these algorithms for for years, but I'm really excited about the availability of those tools for artists and just the potential of how artists can leverage them. 
um, yeah, there's this great tech startup, uh, Museo, that it's like, it's really at the forefront of making those AI tools um, available to artists directly. And I'm pretty excited about that. I think as a listener, I'm excited for the way in which more and more connection points will be made between songs, compositions, recordings, producers, uh, you know, the, 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 what would you call it? The lineup of music makers so that listeners can explore playlists uh, and dig deeper in more ways than just the artist or the producer or the songwriter. But maybe it's like, you know, every song that David Gilmore played a lead so guitar solo on that wasn't a Pink Floyd or David Gilmore. So, you know, any, any way in which music becomes more connected like that, I think is really cool. Um, God, I, th I think there's two things. I mean, the, the first thing which so many people mention is um, NFTs and crypto and things. And I, I don't think I'm, I remain to be convinced whether these will ever be have strong consumer relevance. Um, but I think what they will do is they will transform a lot of back end processes in the music industry. They will remove a lot of the roadblocks which enable artists or songwriters to really get paid and get paid on time. So behind the scenes, those things will make a big difference. Um, the other thing which I'm really fascinated about is, you know, the great, it's one to say gradual decline of streaming services. There's no gradual decline of streaming services. They're still growing. But what is interesting is the increase in social functionality within these services. And, you know, services which didn't really have much social functionality are gradually introducing them or integrating with other services. And I think that's fascinating because I think it'll lead to, you know, constant, you know, even more turnover, new artists being able to break through and connect with audiences far more widely. Awesome. Shall we dive into some Q&As? Let's do it. So the first one comes from Anonymous. Great name. And the question is, new tech trends to speed up growth in certain genres. Uh, actually, new tech tends to speed up growth in certain genres than others. For example, hip-hop and electronic music has benefited greatly. Are there things being done to help other genres, for example, classical music? I'll see my hand because I used to run a classical label. Um, <laughs> uh, classical is weird because it was in, in, in the past, if you go back to sort of like the early days of CD, you know, when that technology or when before that the stereo LP was introduced, classical was always at the forefront because it was the most demanding in terms of audio quality. Um, I think one of the interesting things over the past year has been, you know, this increased interest in live streaming you know, um, in pop music. You know, live streaming has existed in classical music for 10 years, if not longer, and actually been quite a big part of that business. So, I, it, again, I think it's an example of the consumer. You know, a lot of tech trends evolve because of the type of consumer who is interested in a, a genre of music. I hope that makes sense. Stacey, Chris, anything to add on that one? I, I may be just uh, pondering out loud, but um, I was thinking about how things like TikTok, for instance, could um, 
you know, be great for classic, you know, that, that, uh, sea shanty thing that happened a year ago. Mm-hmm. I never in, in a million years would have guessed that that form of music would get so much enthusiasm on something that's like cool and hip for the kids. And like, I'm just wondering if there's a classical or, you know, a sort of catalog jazz, any of that sort of music, um, has a, a viral place in those platforms. Yeah. I mean, just another thing about classical is sort of, you know, we we get obsessed we get obsessed with preconceptions in the music industry, you know, dating for, going back to the days when we didn't have much data or very good data, and you know, in classical music, you know, the, everybody who worked in the genre was obsessed with this idea that the listener was male and over the age of fifty five, you know, and, and all marketing, all covers, all signings were based on this notion that the audience was male and over the age of fifty five. You only had to go into a record store and see that that wasn't the case um, because the people in there were fairly a broader range. But these days, when you look at streaming, you realize that audiences are much broader than they ever were in the past. You know, classical is a great example because classical skews towards around about 20, mid-20s is the core demographic. You know, that makes no sense to this old world thinking in the music industry that it's a male audience over the age of 55. You know, it's when you have access to data, you can suddenly see the real trends and opportunities in the marketplace. Yeah. Stacey, I saw you nodding vigorously when Chaz was saying that. Anything to add? It's not exactly related to the question. I was just, what Chaz said about how like you kind of put people in a box that includes genres and fans and uh like uh, obviously like with working with a music tech company we do like a ton of persona research and increasingly like where you just really find through data that your preconceptions are often so off like there's like a, like this huge rainbow of people that are involved in like the classical industry and represented and like I love what Chris said about finding like classical music musicians on TikTok and their success there because it's true that there's these tools available but it's like how do you skin a cat? You know, like how might those genres use those tools to be successful? And when people do things in different or un, uh, unconventional ways, you often see like a lot of success with that. So seeing classical music on TikTok is like refreshing, you know, when you're scanning through, or you're scrolling through and you see many other things that you you would expect to see. Some really good points there as well. And I love that because yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of it. And um I don't know if anyone else here can relate, but when I was in high school, you almost chose your initial friendship group based on the music they listened to. It was like, oh, you listen to punk rock? Let's hang out. Oh, you listen to hip hop? We listen to to rock. Sorry. Um, It's not like that anymore. And I feel like that's changed because we're starting to see this reflected in data that, hey, um, your listeners may not look how, how you expect them to look. You may think that your audience is all one specific gender and age range and you may be completely wrong so it's, it's funny because i don't even think it was true then like w- whenever if i imagine you and i are talking about the same decade but like we we identified one way but we were still at home listening to all kinds of music i think yeah you know it was almost the first question when you'd meet someone would be what music do you listen to Mm-hmm. And and that's how that's how you make friends. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't be able to be friends because of that. But yeah, it's interesting. 
Let's jump into the next question. Uh, this one is from Dom, and this one's for Stacy. This is what Stacy mentioned about AI. Is there a possibility for the owners of the tech company to get too much of a market share, leaving other people out? And then they said algorithms aren't always objective. You know, it's funny because um, I like the reason why I know about uh, Mizio is because like the the CEO of that company is another woman in tech and we're not very common. So I was like, I wanted to meet her and just have somebody where I could share experiences with. And uh, I, I, I think that she's like an incredible person, but uh, she is very aware of the dangers of tech and the the results of some of the data like she said that they they ran some experiences right now like a lot of people who are using those ai tools are like record labels and like bigger um bigger companies like not individuals so much but um so they were running some tests and they put like like um uh like they put like some neil diamond tracks or sorry neil young tracks through their ai tool and this was like the hit maker tool like which one of these would be hits and like Harvest Moon was like, it was like not a hit at all. It was like on the worst side of the scale. So even if you have like these tools available to you, you have to really be careful about like being objective. Like if you have a feeling or if you have a sense or if you're like, like this is wrong, like the outcome of this of this test was wrong, like try to validate it in, a, in another way. Um, if you feel strongly about your, about your music, that it's like, uh, it has legs and it might be a hit, then there's other ways to validate that. Um, but yeah, like, this is like a great tool for like music, like, like music licensing people are like people who are looking scouts who are looking, who get like a wide, uh, birth of like music, uh, sent to them. And they're trying to, um, just, uh, make their job more efficient. Like that would be a, an effective way to use that more blindly. But if you're an individual, um, yeah, I would definitely validate the data that you get from those sort of tools. I think, I think AI is better than no I. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, and um, I don't, but I think there is good AI and there is bad AI. Bad AI just basically doesn't work. And, you know, on often dies off and is replaced with better AI. And a lot of AI, you know, all it is, all of most of what AI is actually doing is just doing really, really laborious tasks, analyzing a lot of data points, which a human being, you know, probably isn't capable of because it's just too much information. You know, good AI is still dependent on um, a human being actually um, enabling it to have good intelligence in the first place. Did any of you watch, um, watch the sound, the Mark Ronson documentary series? There's a, there's a funny sequence where they feed an AI artist, a bunch of his music and then see what she creates from. How did it work out? <laughs> well, so they they fed it, you know, joyous songs like Uptown Funk and stuff. And it turned some of the phrasing into this really sad, dystopian, inwardly looking um, plea for help and connection. It was amazing. Yeah. And it's sort of one of the challenges with you know, a lot of AI technology, particularly when it comes to listening to music, is consume is computer algorithms can actually write pretty good music. 
you know, relatively good music, provided, you know, they're programmed and, you know, guided and told what to write and told what's popular, what works, what doesn't work. When it comes to listening to music, that's much more challenging. It's much more challenging for an algorithm. And there's very few algorithms out there which are really, really good at listening to music and pulling music to pieces and determining information about it. Yeah, and I would tie it all together and just say that these tools are available, but they don't replace people <laughs> yet. <laughs> Good points. And um, Stacey, you mentioned for anyone that uh, was interested, Hazel Savage, the CEO of Musio, definitely worth following on social media. Another incredibly smart person and one to watch. And I learned a lot just by having conversations with Hazel and following her on socials as well. Okay, on to the next question. This one is from Jalen. Similar to how Spotify provides pre-saved links to connect with fans via email, are there any other platforms that bring the close artist-to-supporter relationship? So to me, that seems like it's more of a DSP-related question. But that being said... Um, I'll throw it open to all of you. Chris, I'm kind of leaning towards maybe some of the tools that you've seen that you would feel comfortable mentioning that bring a closer relationship between the artist and the fan as well. And of course, Stacy. Well, I, I so, uh, if it's DSP related, I do still feel like Spotify has um, kind of, uh, they've facilitated the most uh, from what I can tell the best connection points between listener and, and musician, maybe besides something like YouTube, I guess YouTube, we constantly forget that it's a massive music platform, but, um, and then besides that, I think it's like a lot of the closed nature of some of the DSPs. It's like, it leaves it back on the artist to make those connections via Instagram, TikTok, go kind of shifts the responsibility back to the artist and, and social media to some degree. It's probably a very in in inaccurate uh, answer. Sorry, but anyone else have something smart to say? Yeah, I was gonna. I, I was gonna say. I mean, often artists, I think, over obsessed with the idea that they're going to um, or, or have overly ambitious expectations that you can make a living or you can monetize your fan base. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you're the Rolling Stones, if you're if you're an established artist or even a smaller artist, you know, if you have a fan base, then you can really improve the relationship with them and have that potential to, you know, build a better relationship and monetize them more effectively. But to have a fan base in the first place, you need to have an audience. And, you know, it is very, very different unless you're going to go up to people in the street and say, hi, I'm a musician. Do you want to listen to my music and be my friend? Um, it's very difficult to get an audience. And the way to do that is to go through the platforms where the audience lives. You know, be a small fish in a big pond. Because being, your, being a big fish in your own pond is no good if you're, your pond is in the middle of the woods, miles from the nearest footpath. Nobody will know you're there. So in the first place, you've really got to build an audience. But... At the same time, you know, give your audience opportunities to have a relate direct relationship with you. Use tools, direct, direct them whenever possible to your website. Gather information about your audience because in the long term, having a core fan base, I hate the word fan base, um, uh, is really important. 
Yeah. And I would echo that sentiment too, because like we think about it as like, you have all of these tools available to you. So like a hubs and spokes model where you have all of the spokes are your social media tools and where you, where, where people who are potential fans hang out. And then you want to drive them back to your website where you can build a relationship, you know, uh, engage those fans, like potentially monetize once you get um, like a more genuine relationship. But like, I think that the idea of that really cuts out, it's like waving a magic wand and suddenly like you have, you know, you have to work for it. Um, and uh, there's like, even, even if there are tools available, like um, you, you still have to put in a lot of effort and it's going to, it's not going to be a one-time thing. It's going to be, um, it's going to be a lot of work for your, for your career. Yeah. Awesome. On to the next question. This one's from Brian. Uh, what jobs are available specifically in music tech outside of being an artist or being a musician? And do you use coding or scripting to your advantage? If so, how? So it's kind of like a two in one there. I guess the first part of the question is what jobs are specifically available in music tech? If you're not an artist, if anyone would like to talk to that first. Where, where, where do we even begin? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, the music industry is an industry and there are people with all sorts of different skills, all sorts of different training throughout the industry, you know, um, working, for, working in tech companies and working in more traditional companies. And so, yeah, in tech companies, having a really, really solid grounding in computer engineering will do you no harm whatsoever. And, you know, data science and analytics is really important. And really, you know, and the music industry, for that matter, is still a really, really employs very, very few people in those roles, certainly compared to many, many other industries which have been investing in data for far longer. Um, so I think that, you know, there are, a, there's a vast range of skills, which, it, which, you know, you could acquire and then apply throughout the music industry, whether it's traditional companies or the tech side. And I would add to that, that there are crazy labor shortages because of the world that we're living in right now. And a lot of companies have moved remote. Benzigal has been remote the whole time, like for the last 18 years, but there's a lot of companies that have moved online and that presents a lot of opportunities for you. So like if you're looking for work in music tech, um, there's probably, <laughs> it's probably not hard to like, um, ca like just cast out your line right now and, uh, and look for something. And for it, speaking with my experience in Benzugal and partners, um, if you don't, if you're not necessarily an artist and you want to work in music tech there or and you don't, you're not a coder. Um, I would say, um, like there's a lot, if you want to start somewhere, there's usually a lot of avail availability when it comes to customer service and communications, that is usually a great place to start. And, um, you can go really far in those, uh, in those trajectories too. Um, and, uh, if you are, if you do have interest in coding, there's a huge amount of opportunities in there. Um, and there's also a lot of online courses available. And I don't think companies are that concerned with degrees versus self-taught anymore as they used to be. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is um, there are probably a number of opportunities for people who have a foot in tech and a foot in some other endeavor, marketing, customer service, something like that. Because uh, 
the the conduit and the communication can get lost with different expertise. So there's a lot of value in the person who can be a translator or a project manager that overlaps with multiple um, proficiencies. Yeah, I've got one more thing to add. If you're good at math and you want to work in the music industry, look at look at becoming a data analyst because there's some colossal shortage and an absolute immense shortage because anybody with the skills, you know, can earn a lot more money in other sectors. <laughs> so. And just putting this out to everyone here, you know, just a simple yes or no or hand up or hand down, do you know how to code? Jazz. Mike, Mike will tell everybody that I am the least qualified person in chart metric. I am the idiot in the company. So what you saw there is that Stacy made up 25% of the room, has skills in coding, and we don't. And so we look for people that have Stacy's skills to help us. Um, I, I really regret not learning code. Uh, earlier on in my life because I know how valuable it is now. So I definitely think it's worth, even as Stacey mentioned, just taking a quick course online and see if you get get a feel for it and go from there. But it's one of those skills that I feel is transferable, not just in the music industry, but in general as we move forward. Even just having like a basic understanding of how code works and what quality code is and structures will give you a lot of uh, opportunities to manage people who are much better at it than you are. So it's a good starting point anyways. Perfect. And this kind of segues into our next question from Cynthia. As a 17-year-old, how can I actually find opportunities for hands-on work experience? Um, there's always applying your skills on behalf of a friend who's an artist or, or a, a, a label, you know, you, you could start your own label at the, you know, just, I think there's a lot of value in just starting something, learning as you make mistakes, particularly if you're 17, like you've got time to play around and the consequences aren't all that dire. So, um, and I was, this sort of relates back to a previous question that was asking kind of about what you look for in candidates and resumes. But if someone has shown that they've done something completely on their own initiative, they've built whatever it is. I think that goes a long way for seeing that they can be a self-starter, manage, manage work and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think the, the you know, 17 is a perfect age to, to just get out there and, and hustle for work. You know, and, you know, people, well, I think almost invariably the people who are best and, you know, hustling for things to do tend to be 17 because you've got, you know, the energy, the enthusiasm, few preconceptions and just go for it. Don't feel that there is something formal you have to do. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to know that work experience is exactly that. You're not meant to have any qualifications leading up to that. You know, you just show that you have an interest, you want to learn, you're going to get that opportunity from someone. And I think we've said this multiple times, but ask, ask, ask. There is no harm in asking. Um, and, you know, there's a number of platforms that you can go on. If none of you are on LinkedIn yet, it's a great platform to find people and reach out and even just follow, follow them initially and learn from them as well. Kind of leads into the next question from Ramsey. 
as I keep an eye on the time here, uh, what are each of your favorite unique platforms outside of the obvious social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, et cetera? Is there another platform where perhaps you access your news, you seek out entertainment? Is there a specific platform that you would like to shout out? This is a big one, but it's not something that we talked about at all. And it's Goodreads. I spend so much time on there. Um, I'm like, I read, like I plow through like three books a week and sometimes like they're no more, uh, like (laughs) sometimes it's like, they're just brain candy, but it's such a good place to uh, connect with people who have maybe similar interests or find books by similar authors. And I think like what you do outside of your work time is just as important um, because you're going to learn different perspectives and find different values. And reading is a great way to do that. <laughs> so I say like, uh, if you have interest in that sort of thing, like I spend a lot of time on Goodreads. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out. It, it doesn't exist anymore, this particular platform, because it was created, I think, back in the early 1990s, probably 1994. Um, and, and at the time it was just weird. It was essentially the first or one of the first music recommendation engines. Um, it didn't recommend much because it was only programmed with Frank Sinatra's albums. Um, but it would ask you questions about, um, you know, where it was called the Frankalyzer. You can search it out because periodically I think it does reappear on the internet. And um, it would ask you questions such as, where are you? And you and you, you would only have a limited number of options, such as nightclub, um, the swanky hotel or Joe's bar. And then it would ask you a question, what are you drinking? Martini, Jack Daniels, just give me the bottle. And, and it would ask you this chain of questions and then recommend a Frank Sinatra album for the mood you were in. And it seemed ultra simplistic. But in a sense, it you know that sort of thought process and that sort of algorithmic process actually defines so much about the way music works today. Anyone else? Anything to add there? Uh, I think I'm on all the ones that they mentioned, and probably none of the niche ones. You know, I'm not super active like with Discord or I'll, I go on Twitch once in a while, but mostly I'm on those ones they mentioned. And I would say one thing I appreciate that is the opposite of sort of how social works is those really random curated, um, I don't know if curated is the right word, websites that have no purpose and no utility, like eelslap.com. Does anyone remember that? I love things that have been created for no apparent reason. No one's pointing to them. They just exist as these little dead ends on the internet. So I, I enjoy those things. We have a, speaking of that, Chris, we have a developer at Ben's, actually our CTO, he always develops Twitter robots and he's like been in like the New York times for them, but they're like these, like, I don't know what the point of them is, but I love them. Like he has one that is like a river and it's just posts of like a river with like a random dolphin that is like in your Twitter feed. And he has robots that are posting all of these things. And it's a passion project of him. And it's so strange, but it's getting a lot of attention. I need to follow that. That is, that is exactly what I'm talking about. I'll send you a list of his robots. Thank you. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Uh, I don't know if this is just going to end in one minute from now and if it does, uh, but let's quickly dive in uh, from each of you. If I could just get one final piece of advice that you would like to share with the audience today. I know it's a tough one. (laughs) Uh, I would say like at the heart of it, 
you're not going to get anywhere without music that people want to listen to. <laughs> so use the technology to save your time, simplify your business side so that you have more time to practice. So I'll just keep it simple. <laughs> I, I've got two pieces of, pieces of advice. First one for anybody who's creative or you know, an artist, you know, don't give up, persevere. Don't have unrealistic expectations about achieving success overnight. Think about the long term. Don't think about trying to sort of grow overnight because you'll probably fall down. Think about how you're going to grow over time. Because if you're young, as you all are, you've got a lot of, a lot of time ahead of you. You've got to keep on growing and not fall down. So don't be overambitious, just persevere. And if you're conversely, sort of, um, if you're more on the business side, you know, be enthusiastic. You know, don't try and get the job you want overnight. Think about how you can help people, you know, because that's what people really often want, help. Um, the first point Chaz made is something I was planning something similar to say, which is just think about the ways you can keep this sustainable as, as a constant aspect of your life rather than, you know, do I have a million followers by the time I'm 21? Uh, most of you won't. And so are you going to quit? Are you going to keep going until you're 27? When you're 27, are you going to feel old and past your prime? Keep going. You, you, your best thing, your best development, your best music can always be ahead. And I like firmly believe that even when you're 75, I go to conferences where I hang out with songwriters and these are people who are, you know, long past the point where they're going to have massive popular success, but they're still doing just brilliant work. And they, uh, are doing that brilliant work because they've made it a sustainable, constant part of their life that they can keep digging into, keep learning from, even when the, you know, the glory isn't constant. Because even for people who have the glory, there's peaks and valleys. So keep going. What a great way to end this. I want to say thank you to everyone that has tuned in today. Uh, feel free. I, I hope it's okay to say this on behalf of everyone else here, but please feel free to find us, seek us out, reach out. Uh, always happy to help. I know personally, I, I love to hear from people that have questions and know that hopefully I can steer them in the right direction. But thank you so much to the panelists. Thank you, Stacey from Bandzoogle, Chaz from Chartmetric, and Chris from CD Baby. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks.